The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you've got your copies of God's Word, go with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're back to our study, Foundations. Foundations, the essential foundations. Uh, This series is meant to go along with the essential principles of Christianity from the Apostles' Creed, that series that was done earlier in the year. Now, these are the 15 sanctities that must be embraced and are particularly in need to be understood by God's people in the context of where our culture is and what is happening. So I'd like for you to keep your Bibles here in Genesis and look with me in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. By the way, just uh, alert you, I mean, uh, we had our Every Member Commitment season uh, and we've been in it, and we'll be receiving pledges through next week. Uh, and uh, But uh, next Sunday, we return to Romans to lead us up into the Advent series. And then in Romans, uh, we are going to, our Advent series is going to look at the titles and names of Christ, the Messiah, as given in Isaiah 9 for the, uh, for the Advent season this year. And then we'll get into the, on Sunday morning, the series on 3D body life. That is the discovery, development, and deployment of our spiritual gifts up through missions conference. And then after the missions conference, return back to Romans on Sunday morning. This series will continue on Sunday night through all out all of that process. So just to give you an alert on the pulpit schedule. Now, if you would look with me in Genesis uh, chapter one and uh, and and slip down with me to verse twenty four, verse twenty four, we arrive at the sixth day of creation. Now, can I just remind you, we have established a number of sanctities, essential foundations of the faith. Number one is the sanctity of divine revelation, general revelation available to all, special revelation, the Word of God. Then we went from, from the sanctity of revelation to now, with God having revealed himself, now we can move to the sanctity of God himself. The sanctity of God. And then we went to who is made in the image of God. And that would be the sanctity of man. And then, of course, we had studied the sanctity of creation. The creation week is absolutely crucial in terms of what it anticipates in the week of passion and what it anticipates in the eschatological reality of the second coming of Christ. So uh, if you would now, if you would come back with me, I'm not going to go back and review all of those. They're all available for you. If you'd like to go and listen to those sermons, there are five sermons that have led us up to this point in time. And now we're going to take a look at the sanctity of gender. Uh, spoiler alert or just alert. Um, What I want to do is to give to us a grasp on the sanctity of gender tonight 
and then take a few weeks to look at the sanctity of gender in terms of biblical masculinity and then a, the sanctity of gender in terms of biblical femininity. What does God's word say about that? Now, obviously, we'll still be in Genesis, but for those uh, two sermons, uh, we're going to need to move out beyond that. Then we're going to go, and I'm going to, again, a little bit of an alert, uh, the sanctity of sexuality as we address some things that... Um, they're going to be a little challenging. I hope to be able to handle them pastorally and appropriately, but I'm not going to be any more prudish than what the Bible is. I'm just going to develop what the Bible says in these matters because they are coming to you, to your children and your grandchildren, and you need to understand them. So these coming sermons, I think, are very crucial in this series on the foundations of the faith. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, the sixth day of creation, here's what we find happens in verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image. So here you and I, through God's word, are allowed to listen in, eavesdrop on a divine conversation in the Trinity. That um, in the Trinity, there is this conversation that is reflective and declarative and definitive. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them. Now, we're given a little bit of a clue here because we've just been told he's going to make man singular in the image of God. Yet note the plurality, one God, the plurality accommodating the three persons, our image, our likeness. But now we see that this man is going to have plurality. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this this man that is in plurality, this man in plurality, them are going to have dominion over the creation and are going to have dominion over all the earth and everything that is there. In other words, this that is made in the image of God is going to be God's governor of this creation, is going to be God's vice regent. And then he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. But now look how him is defined. Male and female, he created them. So man, him, is created two genders, male and female, in order to bear the image of God. And then comes a benediction, and God blessed them, blessed who? The male and the female. And then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over every bird and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we are instructed that this this creation of man, male and female, as his vice regent, is now given three specific tasks. And that is that they are to subdue the earth, they are to multiply and fill the earth, and they are to have dominion, that is, stewardship of the earth. 
And so as this stewardship, dominion, oversight is established, the call to cultivate it or subdue it and then to fill the earth, as that has been stated, he then pronounced this one, these that have been given this benediction of their being and their task, he now says, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So now he takes care of the sustenance. So now we see that man created in his image as God has manifested himself reflective and determinative. Then man made in his image is also given the ability for rationality, for more morality, for um, for action, for thoughtfulness, for direction, for definitiveness that made in the image of God. And that's all necessary in order to have dominion and fulfill the task that was given to him. Also needs sustenance. So this this man made in his image, unlike God, will need sustenance. And therefore, because of their physical being that is being created, and so he has provided all of that for them. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, we won't go on reading because it's not part of our study right now. We've already been through the week of creation, and I refer you back to that. But now what I want you to do is to move as we take a focus on the sixth day, as we move to this recapitulation of what has been what has just been described on the sixth day, we now have a recapitulation of it and a focus of it, not only upon the earth, but in that special place that God has made for him to dwell with them and for them to fulfill their, their task. And that is there on the earth in the garden itself. And so what do we find out in this microscope focus starting in Ephesians, I'm sorry, starting in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now you want to underline that, that little statement right there. These are the generations of there are ten times you're going to find that in the book of Genesis. In other words, the book of Genesis is actually ten books of origins. These are the origins of, the generations of. And so now these books bring focus and detail to this overall preamble of the creation week as it's been given us, where first was ex nihilo creation, from nothing God made everything, and then God began to form it and fill it during the six days of creation, resting on the seventh day. Now, in this look upon the sixth day and the creation of what is taking place, <clears throat> we find greater detail in terms of God's reflection and action. 
as well as man's obedience to the Lord. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. So we are still back into the context of the sixth day. There is no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So now we see the dichotomous nature of man. He is physical and he is spiritual. He is made his body from the dust of the ground that is a corpse until God breathes into the nostrils that he had made the very breath of life and then he becomes a living being. So he has a body which is not in the image of God because God is a spirit. But he does have a body and now he has in order to fulfill his task. Note, what is his task? Subdue the earth, govern the earth, and fill the earth. Is it not appropriate that he is made from the dust of the earth as a physical being? And then that will need to be sustained by the uh, vegetation of the earth itself. And then he makes him in his image by breathing into him the nephesh. He becomes a living soul, the breath of life. And man becomes a living soul or a living creature. And then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made uh, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight in his, um, in in the sight and good for food. So here is this garden that is developing here in Eden, the dwelling place of Adam and the dwelling place of God. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God has entered into covenant with Adam. He has given him his responsibilities and he now is establishing the two sacraments of the covenant and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And so what does he tell him now? So a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is it is the one that flowed around the hold of Havilah uh, where there is gold and the gold of that land is good Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The, the name of the second river is the Gahan the Gahine, and is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now you see the task. Subdue it, keep it, tend and defend the garden is what he is called to do. As a vice regent, steward of that which God has called him to be upon this earth that was created for him as a home. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So now here is the first negative that reveals that he is a moral man capable of rational decisions with a volitional dynamic to his life. 
And so here he is given this task, this threefold task, and a fourth commandment is given, the negative that he is not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, for I will make him a suitable helper or a helpmate or a helper fitted for him. In other words, now we see the, we see the development of man, male and female in this context of what God says out of, again, divine reflection. God is doing this purposefully upon reflection in the council of the Trinity. This is being established. And therefore, he said out of the basis that it's not good for the man to be alone. Now that alone is not referring to loneliness. Adam was not lonely. Adam couldn't have been lonely because who's there with him? God and God is enough. But Adam cannot do the task he is given without a suitable helpmate. One that is fit to him. One that is fit alongside of him. One that will assist him in subduing the earth. In having dominion over the creation as the vice regent of God. Another one and another one necessary to properly image God. So the female is necessary for the, for man, male and female to be, to properly reflect God, bear the image of God and to properly accomplish the task that is God given to them. And they, and, uh, and then certainly the female is going to be the fit helper in order for him to be able to, in order for man, male and female to be able to be fruitful and multiply and uh, fill up the earth. So what happens next? So now out of the ground of the Lord, uh, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now they, they had already been created. And now in the hand of a supernatural God, they are brought before man to do what? To name him. Now, please remember, this is very important. Whenever you name something, there are three things being done. If you name something, you have authority over it. If you name something, you are defining it. If you name something, you have responsibility for it. So when you name something, you have authority over it. When you name something, you have the, you are to define it accurately as to how God created it. And then thirdly, you are now responsible for it. So the man gave names, that is, showed authority and defined all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for, and there are two words for man and um, uh, in the text, Adam, and that's where we get the name Adam. And then the other word is Ish. And the word for the woman is Isha, meaning reflection of Ish. This is Adam. But for Adam or Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In other words, none fit the definition of, uh, of coming alongside of him, of being a fit helper to subdue the earth together, to rule over the creation together, to have dominion and to be fruitful and multiply. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, 
he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So again, you see the creation matching the purpose of the creature. Adam is taken from the dust of the ground to rule over the earth, to subdue the earth, and to fill the earth. But it's not good for him to be alone. He needs a suitable helpmate, one that matches with him. So from his side, there is a rib that is taken and then the closed up, and then this rib is then used. Therefore, the material reflects the mandate. And that is to come alongside to be the suitable helper so that as one, they can serve the triune God in the mandates that God has given to them. Thus, the creation act match, matches the creature's purpose. And, uh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at, this, at, it, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha. He is Ish, she is Isha, because she was taken out of man. So what does Adam do? He names her. He's got responsibility for her. This is reflected even in the Christian influence upon the biblical doctrine of marriage as a man leaves his father and mother and a woman is given and they become one and they bear the name together, the name of the husbands who now names his wife. I'll never forget, my wife and I were married on January the 26th, 1969, and we went on a, an extravagant three-day honeymoon to Blowing Rock, North Carolina at the Cliff Dwellers. And... Um, and then we came back to enroll in, uh, to enroll her back in school the next day. And as we returned, we stopped off at Sears and Roebuck, where she had worked with my mother, where I had first met her six months earlier. And um, I we walked in, and there was a lady there talking to my mother. And I said, hi, I'd like for you to meet Cindy Miller. The frost that existed on the floor of Sears and Roebuck, you could have skated on. And I, and I looked at her, and there's this look at me like, what in the world? And then I realized, uh-oh, no, this is Cindy Reader. She said, that's better. And uh, so we are now united together. We are one. And so he owns her. And notice as he names her, she is not the same as him, but same like him. Here you, he affirms our, their equality as image bearers before God. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. One person, many have made the observation she doesn't come from his head. She's not over him. She doesn't come from his feet. She's not under him. She comes from his side. And that means alongside of him to fit in union with him. And the two uh, will become one. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and his and hold fast, hang to, cling to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Shameless sexuality, distinctive gender by the creation of God. As they become echad, one flesh. It's the very word that's used to describe the Trinity. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is echad. It's what's used to describe a cluster of grapes. It's one with plurality. And so the Trinity is echad. And now man is echad in the covenant of marriage that is now provided. And note, the covenant of marriage is created by God and sanctified as a gift to the man, male and female. God didn't make marriage and then go make man, male and female. He made man, male and female. Then he made marriage for their union, their intimacy, and their oneness. It's very much like, what did God make on the seventh day? We're sitting hard. A Sabbath. Why did God make the Sabbath? I quoted it this morning. God did not make man for the Sabbath. God had already made man. Sixth day. He made the Sabbath for man. It's a gift. Marriage, the sanctity of marriage, is a gift. Well, if you can hold on to that, we'll be back to that. But right now, please note that marriage was made and then not gender invented and sexuality invented, that God had made man gender and sexuality, and then marriage was made for God's gift to man in order to rightly accomplish the subduing of the earth, the ruling over the creation, and to be fruitful and multiply, and to walk faithfully before God with the offer of the tree of life if, if through faithfulness and avoiding and saying no to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just the other day, it's been noted, and may I just say something else, because I know it's been about three weeks since we are here. Much of what I'm sharing with you has been poured into my life throughout the years, Dr. Henry Cravendam and others. And I, because all of their stuff just kind of bleeds into me over decades now, I, I don't just have quotes, but I do want to always acknowledge that whatever I'm able to share has always been the blessing of the Spirit of God as I deal with His Word and those that have invested in my life. And Dr. Rick Phillips and his commentary on Genesis, uh, Dr. Francis Schaefer, Genesis in Space and Time, Dr. Jim Boyce, Foundations of the Faith, um, and then... Um, uh, and then, of course, Dr. Johnny Gibson, who was here not long ago, um, and uh, R.C. Sproul. Those men and mentorship and discipleship and what they have written have greatly affected and for which I am everlasting grateful. So that kind of bleeds through here. And I recently, uh, at a talk, I heard Johnny Gibson, Dr. Gibson, uh, professor of Old Testament at Westminster, observe something out of Genesis uh, that maybe will allow me to make some points and uh, build on some points from these two texts with you tonight concerning gender and the sanctity of gender. And it's really interesting where we are as our culture, aren't we? 
Here's the way I try to describe it. We live in the unabashed pursuit of the culture of self. That's where we live. Our culture is the culture of self. There are a lot of isms that are used to get us to this point, but there, no one is playing that game hardly. The socialism, the Marxism, the various uh, isms that are out there are all just being embraced. There is the unabashed commitment to the sovereignty of self in rebellion against God. We will not be who you made us. We will not do what you made us to do. We will declare who we are. We will declare what we do. It's the culture of self, and whenever self and arrogance strikes out against God in sin, then what you always have is you have marks that will accompany it. There are four marks to the culture of self. Insanity, absurdity, immorality, and lethality. The culture of self will manifest itself as a culture of insanity, chaos, a culture of absurdity, confusion, a culture of immorality. For instance, in these few weeks, we are going to see, and it's abundantly clear, sex is a created gift of God to man, male and female. Heterosexual relationships in the context of marriage. But we declare to God, no, sex is for personal gratification. Sex is for my autonomy. Sex is for my declaration. I will determine sexuality. I will determine marriage. And in that rebellion against God, immorality is always absurdity, insanity. Uh, immorality and lethality. You know when you sin against God, it leads you into death. And it leads men and women to commit murder in order to cover up the consequences of insanity, absurdity, and immorality. Thus, your nation, culture of self, is guilty of 60 million deaths and counting. And if the present administration has its way, you will be paying for it penny by penny and dollar by dollar. That is where the culture of self always leads. And as Dr. Gibson made the point, isn't it interesting? It never stops. This downward spiral is unstoppable. It's relentless until it goes into abject anarchy. It sells itself as freedom. It is not freedom. It is lethal anarchy. That's what it actually is. It is lethal anarchy. Well, so Facebook. I'm not going to ask you if you're on Facebook. I know most of you are unless your kids aren't, because they know you are. So they're not going on it. But um, I meet people on Facebook all the time. I make use of it as a platform to communicate. And it wasn't long ago that um, to be on Facebook, and uh, they allowed you for gender 
58 choices. Do I need to say more of the culture of insanity and absurdity? But they now say no and have apologized for that. Because they say, basically said in response to the pushback from the cultural revolution, they said, we don't have the right to limit the possibilities of your gender. So what they do, go to 59? You know, when you hear LGBTQ, LGBTQAI, always remember the next one, plus the alphabet's not through. 58 was not enough. So now it's just fill in the blank for whatever you want to say you are. Just fill in the blank. Now, folks, no society can function with that kind of absurdity and insanity. You just can't do it. You're not going to be able to do it. That's not how God made us. You can break God's laws, but God's law will end up breaking you. And so here is, here is our society in this confusion, in this insanity, absurdity, this immorality. And how and why are we here? Why are we now embracing a neo-pagan culture? You do realize, all of you sitting here, I don't care if you're from Africa, Asia, or Europe. I don't care where you're from. Your forebearers were barbarians. That's what that they were. They didn't even make sense. That's why they got the name barbarian because nobody could make sense of what they were saying. Ba 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 ba. And so they made up a word about them. those are barbarians. That's how they got the name. All kinds of sexual immorality and perversion. All kinds of perversion of any notion of family and marriage. And then Christianity came. And then neo-paganism began to disappear with the church on mission, on message, and in ministry. And society then began to establish itself, not with perfection, but with progress, a progress that was rooted in the church's ministry, and out of that ministry were the effects of redeeming grace and common grace. Well, what you now are, where you are now, you are living not in a pagan society where we are looking for the effects of Christianity. You are in a society that has been blessed by the effects of Christianity. Again, not perfect, but the clear effects of Christianity over literally hundreds of years. Blessings of gospel awakenings, blessings of revivals, blessings of God's kind providence. And in the midst of all of that, we willingly are saying to God as a culture, we will not have you. And now we are descending into the chaos and the depravity and the abyss of neo-paganism. Where humanity has no defining distinctions. Androgyny is the way of life. We will invent ourselves. I will be what I want to be. Thus you see these bizarre attempts at cosmetic surgery where people actually are trying to become animals. As well as a culture that engages in the child abuse of chemical castration of children in adolescence to change their gender and surgical abuse 
irreversible surgical abuse of children. That's where we are as a society. And why are we there? Let me just give you some reasons, seven reasons why I believe we're in this downward spiral of neo-paganism. Number one, we're in it, and we're in it because we have self-inflicted it upon ourselves. We are not victims. What you see today in this cultural revolution that is like a tsunami wave, it is self-inflicted. We are doing it to ourselves. That's what we are doing. We are, in doing, we are doing it purposefully. And uh, we even use democratic, democratic government procedures in order to institute people who are furthering it. Secondly, secondly, it is culturally promoted. What I mean by that is the institutions that shape the culture in our day and time. Now, what's really interesting is the evangelical church is changing its message with cultural accommodation because it has changed its mission to cultural transformation. And the reality is the evangelical church is not a player in the culture. And the more we try to be a player and accommodate our message to get a seat at the table, the less influence we have. The church has never been influential because of how acceptable and how alike it is to the culture. But how distinctive it is through the work of grace and a gracious testimony. Well, who are the culture shapers? I'll give you five of them. The culture shapers that are inflicting this culture and you and I are supporting it is the academy of higher education. In my generation, in our rebellion, didn't work, so we went to the academy, and now we're leading the academy in the classroom and the administration. And therefore, the radicals of the 60s have gone to the academy to lead it and are educating. If you think, if you, listen, I know you love your college. I understand that. I am not trying to rain on your parade. But if you think the government-supported curriculum and educational system that is here is the same one that was there 30 years ago, and the college is the same as it was 30 years ago, then you're living, um, you're living with your head in the sand. It's just not true. The academy is one of the, is perhaps the number one shaper of this cultural revolution of self marked by insanity, absurdity, immorality, and lethality. Number two, number two shaper is the uh, what's now become known as the deep state. It used to be called the bureaucratic state. The deep state or the bureaucratic state. Uh, number three is corporate America. The virtue signaling coming out of corporate America is absolutely astonishing. Uh, number four is um, is Hollywood, uh, the entertainment industry. Let me say that. The entertainment, because it's broader than Hollywood. It's the entertainment, the celebrity culture, the entertainment industry, sports, movies, plays, music. And then number five um, um, is journalism. And that's the one that wraps it all up together. 
Those are the culture shapers, and that is what they are, that is what they are promoting. Number three. So it's self-inflicted through the supported culture promoting, the culturally promoted, um, uh, institutions. Number three, it is manifested by the call to sexual freedom, which in reality is the sexual revolution that is attempted to be defined with the alphabet arrangement of LGBTQAI+. And that is the sexually motivated. Now, many in that, in that revolution and in that context are people that are hurting in their sin and need to be rescued. But there are even more from those culture shaping institutions that are using people who are in sexual addictions and using them to promote what they want to accomplish. Number four, you are in a true cultural revolution. I grew up studying the cultural revolution of Mao, Mao Zedong. I grew up studying the cultural revolution of Pol Pot. I grew up studying the culture, the cultural revolution of uh, Marxism from uh, Lenin to Stalin, the Hegelian dialectic that was brought to bear in Marxism and then, it, and then uh, embraced in the gateway movement of socialism. I watched all of that and I've studied that. And not, here's what you can know about a revolution. And you are in a true revolution. Please hear me on this. A revolution is the revolution is committed to the surrender of its opponents, not negotiation. It's committed to surrender. In other words, its opponents and the number one opponent to the cultural revolution is historic biblical Christianity. And and therefore, it is absolutely committed to the fact that the if the church is to be allowed, it must condemn what it previously celebrated and celebrate what it previously condemned. A revolution is a declaration to the opponents, to the adversaries. You will celebrate what you condemned and you will condemn what you celebrated. Number five, number five, gender confusion and chaos. Gender confusion. This brings it home to where we are right now. Gender confusion and chaos is both a tactic and a consequence of this revolution. It is both a tactic to further, historically, gender dysphoria has been found even at its highest points in less than 3% of the population at some time or another in the span of their lifetimes. 2.8% of that 3% was found in the years of adolescence. 92% of that segment of society, the process of adolescence is what dealt with the issue of gender dysphoria. Now it is nurtured. Now it is a consequence of the revolution as, as zoo sexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality, um, transsexuality, 
All of these, and by the way, they're not new. You'll find them in Leviticus chapter 18 and 19. Is that all of that leads to gender confusion as a consequence. And that is then, and that, and that sexual revolution is embraced with gender confusion as a tactic that is being used. And again, people who genuinely have gender dysphoria and issues through adolescence are the ones that are being, that are the ones that really are being victimized by the revolutionaries. And that ought to break our heart. And that ought to send us with carefulness into their lives. And that ought to send us with grace and truth. And truth and love. And love and truth. The reality, though, is now we have now moved into an exponential growth of that statistic. It is now estimated to be 300-fold and increasing. In fact, a whole new category has been given, and the person who created the category out of observation lost her job in an Ivy League school because she was willing to, to write on it. She called it sudden onset gender dysphoria. She said, there is something amazing happening. Instead of what we have now, now we have this epidemic of gender dysphoria. Why? And then she began to point out why. Teachers are promoting it in classrooms. Children are being taught it's cool. Parents are being taught it's cool that your child becomes significant through this. And that gives you as a parent significance. There is a whole counseling industry that's not there to deal with the gender dysphoria dysphoria of adolescence, but it's there to create cases of gender dysphoria. And even in, in civil in Western civilization nations are able to give surgical and chemical prescriptions to these children with no parental consent. So this gender confusion and chaos is not only a consequence, it is a tactic. Number six, the elimination of men, the elimination, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not the elimination. The, I can't read my own writing, I'm sorry. The effeminization of men and the masculinization of women. Now, I hope that you're not sitting out there and saying, Oh, Harry just thinks that a woman has to grow up, put on a dress, and go cook pancakes every Saturday morning. (laughs) Have you met my wife and my daughters? That is not what I'm talking about. But there is something called biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. And that's what I hope to give some time to in the coming weeks as we move ahead uh, the next few weeks with at least a couple of sermons on biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. But in this revolution, there is the direct, there is the direct assault on anything that reflects biblical masculinity. Harry, don't you believe in toxic masculinity? Yes. I know there are toxic men. I know there's a toxic view of masculinity, but I know 
masculinity is not toxic. In fact, the cure for toxic masculinity is biblical masculinity. That's the cure for it. And there are women leaders all over the Bible. But their femininity was not lost in the heights of achievement that they found in church history and in the Bible. Number seven, the final uh, um, contributing factor to this culture of self marked by insanity, absurdity, immorality, and lethality. Number seven, the fall. This comes from sin. I know you're going to know what I'm going to say next. The heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. Culture reflects the reigning heart view of life. It contributes to it. It hardens it. It creates slippery slopes for it. But basically, the culture is the reflection of what is being taught and thought and embraced. And our issue, as we find in Romans chapter 1, professing to be wise, we've become fools. We have embraced with unbelievable, with unbelievable epistemological assets in this world. We have embraced a journey into imbecility. And it's all because of the arrogance of self. And rebellion against God. And it is a heart issue. God creator. Creation. Binary. God creation. Binary. And the way to strike out against God. And worship the creature and the creation. Is to deny the creator's binaries. Did you notice in Genesis. Binary after binary. Land and sky, water, ocean and water, light and darkness, day and night, now tonight, male and female. And the heart of rebellion strikes out, as paganism always has, against the creator in order to worship the creature. Thus, professing to be wise, we become fools when we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the creature. And we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Well, folks, uh, I've only got a few minutes left, so I'm just going to give you these and I'll come back to it and pick up with you uh, next week in this matter of gender. But if I can give you this, would you just jot these things down and I'll give them to you. If you don't want to jot them down, you can pick them up uh, on the um, I'm going to try to see if we can not only get the manuscript of Sunday morning, but maybe the manuscripts of Sunday night available for you as well. Number one is this. Uh, Number one, from the text that I read, I just want to give you a couple couple of downloads. Again, there's seven, so let me give them to you. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Gender and sexuality, gender and sexuality are affirmed and confirmed biologically through creation by the creator. Gender and sexuality, man, male, and female, marital intimacy, fruitful and multiply gender and sexuality 
are affirmed and confirmed biologically by creation through uh, by, uh, by create by the creator through the creation thus procreation with sexuality in the gift of marriage but gender and sexuality are affirmed and confirmed biologically by the creator not by the internal analysis of the individual no when a baby is born you can either do a blood test or you can hold the baby up and look it doesn't take uh, a degree program to get there male and female this is affirmed and confirmed by the hand of god number 2 number 2 create the creation confirms the creator's mandate and task in other words you know what god made us to do gender wise because god made us to do what he mandated he made adam from the dust of the ground with the mandate he's given to subdue the earth to rule over it and to fill it and he made the woman as a suitable helpmate to come alongside both equal but not interchangeable both different as Mr. Gibson is, uh, says, I can't, he, he's smarter than I am because I, you know, I took science 101 and then I got out as quick as I could. Um, but the fact is, magnets only attract when there's the positive and the negative and they come together. You don't have sameness sexuality. To accomplish the task, subdue. Be fruitful and multiply. There is a distinctiveness. And the distinctiveness starts in the material God uses to bring forth his, crea- his creatures, male and female. And then what he brings them forth to do together and individually as they unite together as one. Number three. The task of man, male and female, is is the same as the naming of man. What is Adam, male and female, Adam and Eve, the male and the female, Ish and Isha, what do they do? They name, they define. That means they take responsibility. But how are they named? They are named by God himself. God takes responsibility for them. God did, God originates them and he originates them in light of what he has mandated for them to do. He defines them, he directs them, he takes responsibility for them and he he has brought them forth in a creation manner for the created mandate he has given to them and it is seen biologically and and it is seen by their origin and it is seen by their composition. It is God who is, it is God himself who names man, male and female. The creature does not name himself, does not define himself, does not direct himself. He is named, defined and directed by the creator. Number four, number four. It requires both male and female to fully, to fully manifest the image of God. It requires both male and female to fully manifest 
the image of God. Number five, number five, man, male and female, not only does not name himself, but is named by God. And even the naming of Eve by Adam was based upon the, uh, was based upon the direction and reflection of what God had done to Adam and through Adam. But as man does not name himself, he is called under the eye of God to name, define, and take responsibility for the creation. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. I am not a pantheist, and I am not finding a home in the green movement. But I do believe in a biblical stewardship of this home God has created and how we handle the other parts of the creation, birds and fish and animals and this earth that has been made. And we do so under the eye of God who named us and gave us that direction. Number six, our rebellion against God is because of the fall into sin. And because of the fall into sin, we, the creatures, now rebel against God. That means you've got to come back next week to see God's response to man's sin, male and female. And why that becomes foundational to man's rebellion against God in sin. Even the sin and its occasion as well as the curse. But I don't have time to do that tonight. That's number seven. What is the curse that God placed upon humanity? What is the curse that God placed upon humanity? And therefore, what is our responsibility to deal with it? So where do I hope to get to with you? I hope to get to with you next week, uh, taking a look at the curse of sin that came upon Adam and Eve and how that has laid the groundwork for Romans 1 and man's rebellion against God in this movement of androgyny whereby we he denies we uh, attempt the effeminization of men the masculinization of women the denial of biblical sexuality that's shameless when it's heterosexual in the context of marriage but always brings shame and what is God's wonderful solution to that through the gospel itself. So we will take that and I will take that home. Let me just go ahead and anticipate something. I've had a, and I'll close in prayer, but I've had many, not many, I've had a significant number of things because of simply the decades of ministry where I've ministered to women and men who have been caught up in the industries of sin, the pornographic industry of sin, the sexual trafficking and sexual uh, sins that are there. And you know, uh, time and time again, when they feel safe enough to share it, they will say, Pastor, I just felt so dirty. I just went home and 
sat down in the shower. Or he went to the bed and just curled up and pulled up the covers. And that's when I love to go to 1 Corinthians 6 to speak of the forgiving and transforming power of the gospel. Such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been clothed. You have been redeemed. And it is that culture of the gospel that we need to take to meet the culture of self with its destructive insanity, absurdity, lethality, and immorality. With humility and yet boldness. Pastor, you keep saying that. Humility and boldness. Look, it's got to be one or the other. Well, it does if you do it in the flesh. But the Spirit of God can weave two threads together. So let's surrender to the Spirit. Let's keep digging into God's Word. And let's stay on mission, on message, and in ministry. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. Thank you for my brothers and sisters and the time that we could spend uh, in this such rich text of Scripture. Would you, Father, please bless my brothers and sisters. So, Father, I, um, you know, my, I, I confess my, uh, uh, I really don't know what to say, Father. Just um, discouragement from time is that people are out there in the midst of this and really can't seem to be interested enough to understand why it's there from your word and how to meet it with your word. But here we are. Here we are. Use us. And may Christ be exalted. And we'll give you the praise now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. If you've been with me tonight through this and been able to track with me, do you now see why the world and the world that's invaded the church hates the book of Genesis and wants to discredit it. It is so powerful. So we'll be back in it next week, all right? You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.